morning. The uh, sermon reading today follows on from the earlier reading in the Gospel according to John, chapter 7, reading from verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, he will perform more signs than this man. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. It'd be great to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage. We're not going to cover everything uh, that we just read, but uh, I do hope that we'll cover the the key themes uh, from the passage. Let me pray as we get into it. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that I might explain it clearly and faithfully. I pray that we might be convicted of the Lordship of your Son in a way that overflows into everything about who we are and what we do. Amen. Have you ever been so absolutely convinced that you are right that it's impossible to believe that you could be wrong? 
It's kind of easier to see in other people than ourselves because we're so convinced that we're right. But when we come to that point, uh, it's quite confronting, isn't it? Uh, For some, uh, it's a concession that actually comes with relief. And what, what, what was so wrong has actually become good news. Uh, for someone else, they hear that same message, exactly the same message, and they hear it kicking and screaming. And they want to find anything to justify why they're right, and of course, the other person is wrong. And often that's what happens with Christian things, isn't it? We look at our friends and we go, you're in denial. But guess what? They think we're in denial as well. If we could just open our eyes, we would see what was actually true. That's true today, and it was true right back at the beginning. So when Jesus spoke, he challenged the the fundamental beliefs of the people, and his words divided. For some, they were words of life. Hard to believe, but fantastic words. And for Others, uh, they look at Jesus and go, you've got a Messiah complex and you are a deceiver. And actually, you're not just leading people astray, you're leading our whole society astray. And so for us today, the challenge is, as we read this passage, who do we think Jesus is? Because he's making big claims about himself. So do we believe that those claims are true or not? And whatever we decide, Uh, that's going to have big implications for our life. So I think the two big questions for today are, do we believe John, so the Apostle John who's writing this book, is writing a truthful account of events? And then secondly, uh, do we believe in that account what Jesus is actually saying about himself? So last week, uh, we finished with Jesus in the town of Capernaum in upper northern regional Israel. And even though he'd gathered you know, quite a following, and even though they liked the signs that he, he was performing, so they were really impressed with him healing people and they were really impressed that they were getting fed, they weren't so keen on where the signs were pointing. So Jesus said to them, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. And the crowd hear that and they just find it too hard to believe and many turned away disillusioned. You know, they were hoping to find someone who would be king, someone who is going to lead them and improve their lot in life. But instead, Jesus is talking about coming from heaven and saying you need need to eat his flesh. And it's just all too much. And so our passage today begins with Jesus still in Galilee. So just to put some location, he's way up north uh, in northern, northern Israel. And his brothers are trying to convince him to head back to Jerusalem for what's called the Festival of Tabernacles. So picking it up from verse 3. Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. So the Festival of Tabernacles was about celebrating God's blessing for the harvest. Uh, But it also had a connection back to 
when Israel were wandering in the desert. So they'd left Egypt, they were heading towards the promised land. It was a little bit of a convoluted journey, it took about 40 years, so it should have taken 11 days. Uh, but as they were living in the desert, uh, they reminded here of how God provided for them. And so for the whole seven days of this festival, they were to live in tents, uh, to remind them of the time that they were living in tents as God brought them out of Egypt. And this event is big. So according to one writer, it was as big, if not bigger, than Passover. So thousands of people are coming into the city which makes this festival a prime opportunity for Jesus to take his public influence to the next level. You know, perhaps recapture some of the momentum that got lost after the feeding of the 5,000 debacle, because that started so well but ended up with so many people disillusioned. Uh, but maybe here's the opportunity to reignite things. So presuming the brothers are being sincere, and it's a little bit hard to tell, they seem to genuinely believe that Jesus is a man from God, uh, perhaps a prophet, uh, that he's doing incredible things, um, perhaps even as impressive as Moses, but they don't believe everything that Jesus claims about himself. So here they are pushing him to go big. Let's put these claims to the test. Let's go to Jerusalem right to the absolute heart of the nation and show your disciples what you can do. Show them the works that you can perform and reignite that fervour, reignite the movement. Because last time he was there, over Passover, he really poked the bear, but he kind of left things a little bit unresolved. So here's what happened. We'll go back briefly to chapter 5. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, and he's talking about healing a man, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then a little bit later, just in case they're not completely offended and outraged already. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed in Moses, you would also believe in me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So you can kind of understand why Jesus is really unpopular in Jerusalem. You know, in their mind, uh, he has willfully and unrepentantly uh, flouted the law and the Sabbath. He claims to be equal with God. And then he tells them all, all the religious establishment, the very learned people, uh, that they're really you know, a pack of buffoons. And they haven't really listened to the law at all because if they had, they would recognise that Moses was really talking about him. And so Jesus knows that if he returns to Jerusalem that they will want to kill him. And so Jesus resists the pressure to go. Uh, but then he seems to change his mind. So verse 6, You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he has said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, 
After his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. We all flip-flop on decisions all the time. Uh, sometimes we, we flip-flop because we've got new information. Uh, I was going to go for a surf, but now I've discovered that the surf's 10 foot, and so to spare myself drowning, uh, I won't go. Uh, sometimes we change our mind just because we can't make up our mind. Uh, do I want the red one? Do I want the, the blue one? Uh, do I need any one at all? Uh, and so we, we flip-flop between decisions. That's all very fine for us, but I think we find it a little uncomfortable when it sounds like Jesus seems to be changing his mind because we expect him to know exactly what his plan is. He's planned it all out 10 moves in advance and we expect him to be decisive each step of the way. But Jesus here seems to be ambivalent. Uh, he's not going because his time has not yet come. And that phrase sort of pops up a lot in the book of John and it's always referring to his arrest and persecution and crucifixion. And then at the same time he says, you know, he's gonna, he won't go up but then he chooses to go up and then he chooses to go up in secret. Uh, so it is possible that Jesus simply changes his mind. That he says one thing to his brother and then after he's convinced, uh, perhaps convinced by the father, to do something different. Uh, if that happens, then the outcome's the same, but the motivation for going is very different. But I think more likely, given the context, it's not so much about changing his mind about going as how he will go. Uh, his brothers want him to go big. Uh, to rally the disciples, you know, kind of like a triumphant entry moment that we will see in the events of Easter. And he's saying to his brothers, I'm not going up to Jerusalem, I'm not going up like that. But he still will go, and he will go up personally and privately. Not quite in secret in the sense of, you know, cloak and hood, uh, but uh, without making any great fanfare as he goes. He simply goes to the festival. Uh, but even going up privately is difficult because everyone is expecting him to turn up. And so there's a lot of talk about Jesus coming. Uh, some believe he is a good man, and so there's a sense of sort of positive anticipation perhaps. Uh, for others, they see him as a deceiver. And then it all comes to a head midway through the festival. Not at the festival itself, but he goes up to the temple courts and he begins to teach. Now, John doesn't really record what he taught, but clearly the people are impressed. How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus has made a claim about his authority and then he challenges people who are genuinely seeking to do God's will, to test those words for, him, for themselves. Because if they're choosing to do God's will, then they're choosing to listen to the Scriptures. And if they do listen to the Scriptures, then they'll recognise the truth when they see it. And in this situation, the truth isn't just a message, it's a person, it's Jesus. 
And so, but for most of the people listening, they hear, but they still don't believe it. You know, going big is all very fine if people actually rally behind you and follow you. Uh, But if you come charging in and no one follows, then you're just left out there on your own, kind of exposed. And that's a little bit what's happening in this moment. When Jesus was in town last time, he accused the religious establishment of being willfully ignorant of the law, and now he's accusing them of being willfully disobedient. Are they going to pick and choose the bits of the law that work for their case? And the people are outraged when Jesus suggests that actually the establishment is trying to kill him. Now, how could Jesus possibly make such an accusation against such good, righteous people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? In fact, they're so outraged that their only conclusion is that Jesus must be possessed by a demon. Uh, Now, we don't quite know how they get to that conclusion, but if you put that together with a few other accounts of how people perceive Jesus, I think the rationale goes something like this, that how else can you explain that someone who teaches with such authority, who can do miraculous things and still tell such lies about God's people. And so they conclude, well, he must be from Satan. He must have come to sow seeds of disconsent and to actually uh, disrupt the good people of Jerusalem. And so this whole encounter goes back to what happened last time with the healing of this man on the Sabbath. So verse 23. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? So the law was simple. Uh, Do not work on the Sabbath, and if anyone does work on the Sabbath, then they are to be put to death, Uh, which to us seems beyond extreme. Certainly that's not our cultural situation, is it? But for them, it was a very tangible way of keeping God right at the centre of, this, of life and society. Now, for us, we're not under the law in the same way. Jesus came to fulfil the law. But what Jesus is saying here is, if we're going to be consistent about that, then what happens when you have two laws that conflict? So Israel are commanded to keep the Sabbath, but they're also commanded uh, to circumcise boys on the eighth day as a sign of their covenant relationship with God. But what happens if the eighth day lands on the Sabbath? Uh, Now what do you do? And what they did was they prioritised. They chose for one thing to be more important than the other. So it's a bit like us saying, uh, it is illegal to speed. But it is legal to speed if you're an ambulance and there is an emergency. And in that moment, we make a priority, don't we? We decide that preserving life is even more precious and worth the risk than not speeding. And they kind of do the same thing here. They prioritise circumcision and being faithful to God in that way over the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, well, if you can work on the Sabbath to heal someone in that way, to heal someone spiritually, then by your same rationale, it is just as valid to heal someone bodily on the Sabbath. 
And so now the whole situation has left people completely divided. On one hand, uh, there are some who are plotting to kill Jesus, but on the other hand, there are some people who are going, perhaps the, this really is the Messiah. And in fact, the fact that the, the religious leaders are allowing him to speak in the temple court, well, maybe they've changed their mind as well. On the other hand, uh, they were expecting a Messiah who would sort of just appear amongst them, kind of mysteriously, perhaps like Moses returning back to Israel in Egypt after he left. But they know where Jesus comes from. For some of them, they know where Jesus used to live. Uh, they know the family. So for many people, this, you know, Jesus being the Messiah is just a little bit too normal. On the other, other hand, I'm not sure how many hands we're up to, again, quite a few hands. But if his upbringing in Galilee is too normal then the way Jesus explains where he is from is simply too extreme. He says, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but not I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. So they're expecting some mystery, but they're not expecting like that much mystery. The idea that he's literally from heaven, that he's the eternal son. And so for some, Jesus is now a real threat and they try to seize him and then a little bit later, as we read, they will try to arrest him. And yet, verse 31, still many in the crowd believe in him. They say, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? You know, the people were as sceptical about Jesus as any sceptic today. And even though Greek and Roman mythology had the idea of the gods coming and, and dwelling amongst people, that certainly wasn't a Jewish belief. But all the signs are there and they just simply cannot, cannot ignore them. All the signs are pointing to him being the Messiah, the chosen one of God, and now he's claiming to be God and who was with God in the beginning. And then if the crowd weren't conflicted enough already, Jesus says, I'm with you for only a short time and then I'm going to the one who had sent me. And at this point they are so confused they just don't know which way's up. Uh, so verse uh, 33, Jesus says, uh, sorry, he's talking about his death and resurrection and ascension uh, but for them, they're thinking uh, that he's perhaps going to leave Israel and go you know, further out into the Roman Empire, perhaps take his message to the Greeks. And so left, it's left people completely divided and confused. And then John sort of pauses his account. You know, it's one of those scenes where he's left complete chaos and then he takes a break and jumps a few days ahead, to the last and the greatest day of the festival, where Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. For those who have sort of been following this series with us and reading through the book of John, this theme of thirst is becoming 
quite familiar, uh, that Jesus is the one who promises to satisfy. I will satisfy your need to feel safe and forgiven from your sin. I'll satisfy your need to feel secure about your future. I'll satisfy your need to know that you are loved by the one who created you. And all of that will be achieved through what Jesus will do on the cross. And it's received as we recognise that and believe. So Jesus is the living water who satisfies, but he's also the one who will give the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be like living water, which flows out from them. So some of that flowing out is going to be directed towards God. Uh, as we seek to love him, as we seek to live in obedience to his commands, as we seek to honour him with our life, with all the detail of our life. Uh, Not just what we do on Sunday, but how we relate in our family, how we approach our work, how we spend our money. All of it will testify to our love for God. Uh, Some of that flowing out is directed towards the world. As we show people what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. As we stand up in the world and we share the same message that Jesus has shared with us, uh, that he is Lord and Saviour and we need to repent and he offers life. And some of that flowing out will be directed towards one another. Uh, As we gather as God's people, uh, united by Christ and united in his spirit. And people should be able to walk into our church and see it a flawed community of people. Certainly not perfect, absolutely not. But with this earnest desire for godliness, uh, to love God and to love one another. There's this modern narrative at the moment that in the time of Jesus, everyone was superstitious and gullible and would believe pretty much anything. Uh, But in reality, when Jesus came and he spoke, Uh, His message was as divisive then as it is now. Uh, Perhaps even more so, in our culture, we've at least heard a bit about Christianity. Right back then, for a Jewish person, as they hear this message, this is all new. And it's certainly very different to what they had expected. And for many, the message was simply too outside the box to be believed. Uh, But what about for us? Uh, Going back to those first two questions, do you believe John is writing a truthful account of events? And secondly, do we believe the claims that Jesus is making? Because in those claims, there is the offer to satisfy and there is the offer of life. And if you're not quite sure either way, then perhaps this is a good starting point. Uh, to either reaffirm your faith, be confident about where you stand, or perhaps this is a challenge moment uh, where you go, what am I actually going to believe? What are the implications of my choices? Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the Apostle John. Uh, We thank you that you inspired him to write this word so that we might know about the events of uh, what happened in, in, his, in the life of Jesus and what he had to say to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we might hear them, uh, that we might believe and respond. Amen.